What's up, guys? Before we get going today, just want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry and has been tested and refined through years of wisdom and experience. You need to check Skybox out. There's a lot of posers, a lot of pretenders in the handicapping industry. Skybox is the real deal. They've been leading clients to profit for years now. I promise you they will do the same for you. You've got football season coming up. There's no better time to test these guys out. Like you can do a day pass, 10 bucks, you know, test the waters a little bit. I recommend doing a full on year pass and just diving right in. I promise it'll pay for itself and then some, but I get it. You maybe want to try it for a week, maybe try it for a month. They're going to have a package that fits your price range. You could do a week-long all-sports package, week-long sports centric. Right now, you're really kind of going with either NASCAR or baseball. There's some NBA final stuff as well, but that's kind of what you're rolling with the Skybox right now. You could do a month-long all-sports, month-long sports-specific. Whatever kind of fits your price range, I promise you these guys will have a pack, picks package that will fit your price range. Particularly, I know a lot of you degenerates out there are going to want to be diving into this during football season. Don't just aimlessly wander onto the board uh, your first football Saturday, football Sunday of the weekend. Let Skybox guide you. They're going to make you money. It'll be well worth the investment, and you won't have to meet the man on Monday morning and him asking you for a Venmo request. Skybox is the real deal. I promise you, you're going to want to try these guys out. I'm wearing a Skybox hat as we speak. They have some pretty sick merchandise as well, but their picks are even better. Trust me, you're going to want to check these guys out. Go to their website, skyboxsportspicks.com, pick a package, and then you put in the promo code RIPPY, and you get 20% off just for being a listener to this podcast and hopefully subscribing to the newsletter. So you're welcome for that. But please, when you do go buy a package, use the promo code because it tells them that we sent you and you it, it costs less. So it's free money for you, and it helps out the website as well. And by the website, I mean us, not Skybox. But I appreciate uh, appreciate their business. Happy to have them on board. Seriously, go check these guys out. If you're into the sports wagering game, I promise you they're going to lead you to profit and it's better than you flying blind and then having to shell out money to your bookie on Monday. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. You know the drill. It's been a couple weeks. Might be time for a grill corner with Greg. LB's is absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. If you're a subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter right now, that's rippyrights.substack.com. All you do is type in your email. You get a newsletter from yours truly three to five times a week and discounted meats. I'll let you decide which one's better. But Greg's on a special for Rippy Rights subscribers. Just show him proof of subscription and you'll get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a pack of sausage for $5. That's one hell of a start to your week. I'll reach out to Greg this week, see if we can change up the deals for the people out there. Mix it up a little bit as you get off in the mix in this late summer swing. We need to go check him out. It's absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Oxford is so lucky to have it. Go try the Lane Train special, Keith Carter special, the just array of mouth-watering sausages they have, whether it's the uh, ribeye sausage, spicy ribeye sausage, Oh, Greg, I think, had a blueberry sausage a while back. They have all kinds of stuff over there. You need to go check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Today's podcast is a little bit different. I was going to do a mailback Friday last Friday, but I had some technical issues with the podcast Friday morning. And by technical issues, I mean 
my internet was out. I couldn't figure out how the hell to get that thing back on. So I just saved the questions for the weekend. So you're about to get an hour and change of yours truly answering you guys' mailbag questions. Um, we're back to a normal programming schedule. You'll hear me talk about that in a minute, but after a short week, some vacation time, we're back full throttle, ready to roll three podcasts a week. We'll be ready to rock over here at the Rippy Rights Podcast because that name makes so much sense. And I know the message board is thrilled about that. But anyway, just a little programming note. I went with the solo Monday pod. Didn't want to waste you guys' questions. But we got a couple of good guests lined up this week too. So I'm really pumped about that. But uh, appreciate you guys listening as always. Thanks for submitting the content, uh, the mailbag questions for content on Friday. And so uh, this is me rolling through your mailbag questions. A little bit different. If you don't like it, that's fine. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of me talking. I could certainly understand that, but I promise you we'll be back to a normal schedule heading into this week. So without further ado, let's roll into mailbag Monday. Rippy writes with Brian Scott. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall and then writing down every thought you have. Happy Monday. I am Brian Scott Rippy. On the other end of the line is, well, no one. We're doing a solo pod today. As I promised on Friday, this is a Monday edition of Mailback Friday. Um, had some technical difficulties recording the podcast on Friday. You guys showed out, though, with questions as I asked for on the internet. So I figured I would just hold it until Monday. So we're going to try something a little different today. We've got some things in the works. It's kind of that. Uh, that summer lull right now where you're in between football season and just kind of piecing together content. Don't want to dive too heavy into football too early. You've got SEC media days next week. So bear with me. Apologies for the one podcast last week, but we'll be back to a normal programming schedule this week. Got a couple of good guests uh, lined up this week that I'm pretty excited about that uh, hopefully will work out and uh, we'll have three podcasts this week for sure. So, Appreciate you tuning, tuning in today. We will take your mailbag questions that you submitted for Mailbag Friday. And uh, I suppose celebrate Mailbag Friday on a Monday. I don't know how your boss is going to take the people's holiday being on a Monday uh, as raucous as things get on Fridays, but you could try to run it by him. But anyway, we'll get to your questions, cover a lot of different uh, stuff today. Maybe some MLB draft at the end. Just got done watching game three of the NBA finals. Who knows where this will take us, but uh, let's just dive right into it. We'll start with the first mailbag question I see, to be completely honest. Let's see. Grant Sito asks, who will be better this year, more improved this year, excuse me, Ole Miss defense or the kicker? Interesting question here. I guess we're going to frame this from the standpoint of who will be, like, you said better, but more improved because you can't really, like, I guess, gauge the two together, right? It's two different statistical categories. Like, what do you define as a, as a successful year for the kicker? And what do you define as a successful year for the defense? So we'll just view this through the lens of who will be more visibly improved. Just eye test. You don't even really have to go metrics. And I think I'm going to go with the Ole Miss defense because I don't really know who the kicker is, is going to be yet. I know Ole Miss signed Caden Costa in this last class, and I believe he showed up on campus this summer. But he was not there for spring. I don't really know how that kicking battle, if you want to call it that, is going to shake out just because I don't really know who the other kickers are going to be, right? Like you had two kids on the roster, Kale Nation, a sophomore from Madison Central, and Land Gebhardt, who went to a fine institution, Jackson Academy. I'm confident with his range 
anywhere inside of 60 yards because that's really just what the MIS does, fielding leaders on and off the field. But be that as it may, Costa is kind of the high, more highly rated recruit. Not kind of, definitely the more highly rated recruit. But I'm just not in tune. Like, I'm not there every day. Um, I won't be during camp. I have no idea how the kicking battle is going to shake out, I guess is what I'm getting at. So I'll go with the defense. You know, Chase and I talked about this, I think, on the podcast last week, the damage that Hugh Freeze did and kind of how to quantify it and whether it was overall positive or negative experience for the Hugh Freeze era at Ole Miss. And I'm not going to get into that today per se, but one of the things we did talk about was that Ole Miss is still reeling from the Hugh Freeze era in terms of the defensive side of the football, whether it was the sanctions or Hugh's inability to recruit defensive players consistently uh, over those last couple classes. You know, they got that, they got that you know, third four-star receiver in the class, but never mind them not being able to recruit a linebacker um, to play for three years. That's, that's still costing them to some degree. And, you know, people that don't like Matt Luke will probably say that's ridiculous to continue to blame this on Hugh Freeze, but it's kind of both. Matt Luke wasn't necessarily able to pull them out of the hole in terms of talent replenishment on the defensive side of the ball, but he was also kind of had his hands tied, particularly for the first year, year and a half, and he also chose to ride into the season, 2018 season, that is, with Hugh Freeze's coordinator, Wesley McGriff, who was not very good. Uh, I think Mike McIntyre's 2019 season alone could kind of shed some light on uh, how bad Wesley McGriff was. So no matter how you want to look at that, I guess what I'm getting at is, is Ole Miss is still reeling on the defensive side of the ball from the you know, NCAA era, if you want to call it that, the, the, the cloud it created for recruiting uh, combined with Freeze's inability to recruit it and then the sanctions after and having kind of the, the shortened scholarship there for a little bit. I think there was a game in 2018 or maybe it was 19. I can't remember – Ole Miss took the field against Auburn with like 48 scholarship kids. And that particularly hurts the defense because they didn't have much depth to begin with. So with all that said, I think DJ Durkin and I believe Chris Partridge have done a pretty good job in terms of recruiting so far. And they signed a pretty good class, right? It was a defensive heavy class, a lot of defensive backs, some help on the defensive line. Even with Jacquez Jones gone, I think Ole Miss will be still be pretty good at linebacker, like what they have with Lakia Henry, Momo Sonogo, a um, couple other guys there, you know, you get the transfer from Chance Campbell. And so I think Ole Miss will be pretty good there. And I have to think they're going to be pretty good in the secondary just because they were not necessarily untalented last year. They were young and didn't have a ton of depth. But then getting Otis Reese back towards the end of the year helped and he kind of fit in seamlessly. And they've got some pieces back there. And I think a couple of the guys in this 20. 20, 2021, whatever you want to call it, recruiting class. I forget how they're classifying these days. The last recruiting class. I think there's a couple guys that uh, have potential to play pretty quickly for Ole Miss out of there. And so I think they'll be improved on the back end. I think the linebackers will be okay. And if you can get you know, something sufficient out of those JUCO guys uh, on the interior defensive line, I don't really know what to make of Tywan Malone. I mean, I, I think he'll probably be in the mix for some playing time, but it's also kind of hard to tell um, just with newcomers. But if you can get something you know, solidified on the interior with Isaiah Iden and Jamon Gordon, I think you've got a chance to be decent. Granted, they're probably still missing a dynamic pass rusher or two. Getting Sam Williams back helps. They'll be thin up front. But I think they have some couple interesting options. KD Hill's a junior now. Patrick Lucas Jr. is a sophomore. They've got some – Tariqus Tisdale is back and probably going to play on the outside next to – or excuse me, opposite from 
Sam Williams. So I think I'm going to go with the defense here because it's just a little bit more of a known commodity right now than the kicking situation. And hell, the kicking situation is so volatile. Like kickers are so volatile in college football. Miss could settle on a kicker. Let's just say it's Caden Costa. It's pretty good for the first five games. Maybe he tweaks a hammy or maybe he just misses a couple and kind of gets in his own head and it could be a disaster by the end of the year. I do think Ole Miss will be better at kicker than they were in 2020 because, I mean, my God, with respect to Luke Logan, I'm not sure how it could get worse. I think they made one kick outside of 40 yards last year. Uh, it wasn't great. So I think they'll be improved on both sides. But in terms of more improved, I'm going to go with the defense just because I, it's kind of, a, kind of more of a known uh, quantity, I guess, if that makes sense right now. So I expect the Ole Miss defense to uh, kind of keep them around in a couple games this year. And I'm not going to say they're going to win a game or so based off their defense, but I don't think the defense is going to play them out of games like they did a year ago. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe Ole Miss struggles. Maybe that's why they go six and six instead of eight and four. Who knows? But uh, I, I, I'm sticking with my answer there. I kind of like it. Let's see. Next question we got. Corey Clark asks, best way to attend best away game to attend on this year's football schedule overall tailgate atmosphere bars a win etc this is an interesting question because the first time I read it and when I was prepping for this podcast I didn't I read it as like best place to go just city but combining all of those factors so you almost has four road games this year and a neutral site game if I'm not mistaken so you go at Alabama at Tennessee at Auburn and at state. Well, you know, Tuscaloosa is okay. Ole Miss is not going to win that game. I think it's a fine town. I like it okay. Auburn's all right. I know some people aren't as high on it. I think the whole sky bar thing's pretty cool. I think Jordan Hare's an underrated loud stadium. That that game in 19, if you guys remember, where Ole Miss was actually in the game against a pretty decent Auburn team and you know, Rich Rodriguez, I think, ran it on first down with Plumlee like 19 times in a row or something dumb. Maybe it wasn't with Plumlee. Maybe it's just like 18 runs in a row. But Ole Miss defense, Mike McIntyre's defense, speaking of, played its ass off that night in that game. And Ole Miss was in the game until the final possession. And I say all of that to say that's one of the loudest I've ever heard a stadium was that final drive when Plumlee got it into – uh, Auburn territory, and they just kind of ended up running out of time. Maybe they turned it over on downs. My memory's escaping me, but that's a pretty loud stadium. I think Jordan Hare is a cool atmosphere. Um, I, too, truthfully, I've been to Knoxville once, but I think it was for basketball. I know I've never been to their football stadium, so I don't know a ton about Knoxville. And uh, look, with respect to Starkville, that I wouldn't call that a destination road trip. So my answer to you. Maybe hit the Labor Day special. Maybe go with the game in Louisville, if that even counts. Neutral site game. I think Ole Miss probably wins that game. That new Mercedes-Benz Stadium is pretty badass. I really enjoy Atlanta anyway. That's always, you know, the neutral site game is always a good time. It kind of feels like a bowl game in September. Ole Miss has had some good experiences in these kind of neutral site games. I guess sand Florida State in 2016. I'm thinking of Boise in 14 Texas Tech in 18, and maybe I'm missing somewhere in between, but you get my point. Ole Miss has had some decent luck in these games of late, and uh, Atlanta's a cool town. So I guess where I'll steer you is Atlanta, and if not, I guess my second choice would be Knoxville, just because that's not a place Ole Miss gets to go a lot. Historic stadium, Neyland Stadium, holds a lot of people. Heard it's pretty loud. Heard it's cool. Never been to that one to cover a football game, so I can't really answer that definitively. So I'll direct you towards Louisville 
And then my second choice will be Tennessee. I think Ole Miss can win both of those games. I think they'll – I say they'll be favored in both of them. I don't really know what Tennessee will be by October 16th, so I don't want to, like, I guess get too ahead of myself. But those are two winnable games on Ole Miss's schedule. Um, I've always heard Knox was okay. And uh, Atlanta's pretty cool, too. So I don't think you can go wrong with either one of those two. David Collier asks, what's more likely next year? Football makes a New Year's New Year's six or baseball makes it to Omaha. Ooh, this is a good one. You know, I'm going to say, and this is my shock some people. I think I'm going to say Ole Miss making it to a New Year's six game. I don't think that's going to happen. Please don't misquote me on this. I'm just answering the question, but is there a world like what game can Ole Miss, like what's, what's a automatic loss on Ole Miss's football schedule other than Alabama? Is there one? It's certainly not Arkansas. It's certainly not at Tennessee. Certainly not LSU at home. Not Auburn on the road. Texas A&M at home will be tough, but if you presented me a case that Ole Miss wins that game, I'm not going to call you crazy. You're not going to go into that game in the middle of November and think Ole Miss has no shot unless something's gone terribly wrong to that point. You know, Vanderbilt, of course, and then the game at State. So, like, Ole Miss has 11 winnable games on the schedule, which you – could not have said in years past. And so do I think Ole Miss is going 11-1? Of course not. Do I think there's a world where things could get really weird? The defense performs way better than people think, and Ole Miss somehow finds a way to get to 10-2? and I guess. And that's certainly getting to a New Year's Six game. And there's a weird world where 9-3 and gets you to a New Year's Six game. And so with 11 winnable games on the schedule – I think I'm going to go with Ole Miss making it to a New Year's Six Bowl. I'm not predicting that, but I think it's more likely than Omaha because as we transition to the flip side of things, and Colin and I covered this if you guys listened to the Thursday podcast or Wednesday. I can't remember which day I put it out last week. Talking about the draft that occurred Sunday night and then the ceiling for this team next year, and even if they do get Tim Elko back, I think the Ole, Miss, Ole Miss's ceiling with Elko is a high-end, I say high-end, low-end host, that 13 to 16 seed range, and that's if everything goes right. They just – who's the Friday night guy next year? It's Derek Diamond, and he's you know, contemplating, exploring the idea of possibly needing surgery on his elbow. Some people seem to be optimistic that he won't need it, but that doesn't sound great if that's your Friday guy you know, going into next year, and particularly, let's just say it's worst-case scenario and Diamond does need surgery, there's not even a, a close to a second clear option. To take Diamond out of the equation for a second, if Diamond's not available, who is starting on Friday night for Ole Miss next year? Is it Jack Doherty? I mean, Drew McDaniel? I don't think you can ask uh, the kid from Texas A&M Corpus Christi, John Addis a Friday night guy coming in from Texas A&M Corpus Christi. You know, when he signed or committed to Ole Miss, Chase likened him to Christian Trent. I saw a little bit of YouTube tape, and I could see that comparison. But remember, there's a difference between 14 Trent and 15 Trent. Well, you know, when you take the ball on the Friday nights in the SEC, it's a, it's a whole different beast. And so I don't think that's fair to ask from him. Maybe one of those JUCO kids comes in and just lights it up. Clearly, as I've recorded this, Jackson Job has already been drafted third overall by the Detroit Tigers so he's not showing up to campus I hope I'm not spoiling anything from anyone for anyone so you know who's the Friday night guy 
and even beyond that, best case scenario, let's say Diamond is the Friday night guy, and he's actually pretty good. Let's just say he takes a jump. Let's say it's Diamond, February Diamond of 2021, where the V goes up, he looks pretty good, chubbed against Texas. Let's say that version of Diamond is there all year long. Are you confident in a back end of you know, Gaddis and McDaniel or Gaddis and Doherty or whomever it is? And even if you are fairly confident in that, who's getting out before you get to Brandon Johnson should he be the closer? Like, there's a lot of question marks on that pitching staff is what I'm getting at, and not to belabor the point. Ole Miss's offense is going to be really good whether Tim Elko comes back or not, but I, I just – I'm not confident in their ability to get outs on the mound. I don't think they can be done in the transfer portal. I think they have to go find another arm, maybe two. Um, a two would probably be good, but how are you going to – like, what are the odds of them finding a Friday night arm in the transfer portal? I would put it at about somewhere between zero and 0.5%. I just don't see it happening. And so for that reason – uh, as a kind of a long-winded way to answer your question, I'm going to go with Ole Miss making a New Year's Six game just because there's one game on the schedule I know they're not going to win, and the rest you could convince me they win. I don't think they do it, but you could. And there's just too much unknown on the baseball team going into 2022 because you know I guess if you want to make the argument Ole Miss could bash their way you know to a national seed, I don't buy that because they kind of bash their way into national seed territory this year and it still didn't end up mattering because of their inability to get outs particularly in the bullpen and you know you had Doug Nikhazy and Gunnar Hoagland for most of the year on the mound and they're sure as hell not going to have that so I'm going to go Ole Miss New Year six game more likely to happen than the baseball team making it to Omaha I also have the fact that Ole Miss did make a New Year six game like five years ago uh, under Hugh Freeze six years ago whatever it is and Mike has gone once in 21 years so feel pretty good about that answer but could be wrong but again this is a july podcast before football season next question we got up do you got so here we go jay luckett asks would you rather be trapped in a room with a komodo dragon or an eight foot python both are not happy campers i've never seen a happy komodo dragon never seen a happy python and i've watched my fair share of planet earth so one do you guys get this out of a book there's some. There's a couple more down the road. I don't really understand. People enjoy the uh, the terrible scenarios, the uh, the kind of uh, mind f for the lack of a better phrase uh, type questions. I, are you guys getting these out of a book? I get these every week. I don't necessarily hate them, but they they get odder by the week. So anyway, I don't know. I, the the listeners always keep you guessing. I, I'm probably gonna go with the eight foot python because I've seen videos of those komodo dragons and those bastards are mean. So. Uh, I don't really have a lot of analysis on this. I didn't really go deep into the scouting report of eight-foot pythons. I have seen Komodo dragons rip things' faces off before. Uh, so I'm probably going to go with the python just because the Komodo dragon has legs. you got to think about that. So it's like it's got a tail like a snake, but it's also got legs, and it's got the ability to kind of look angrier to where like a snake. It's like, okay, if this python's just going to squeeze the life out of me, cool, I'll wave the white flag. I lived a good life, started a podcast, you know, sold a company, three-figure deal, not to brag. Um, I've lived a good life if that thing's just squeezing life out of me. I feel like the Komodo Dragon's not going to stop until there's nothing but, like, a bone or so left. So, going to go Komodo Dragon on that one. Uh, excuse me, going to go Python. Don't really want to screw with the Komodo Dragon. So, thanks for that submission. Uh, this has been Animal Thunderdome Corner. Kirkwood Palmer is our next question, and he asks, do you think name, image, and likeness 
we'll see a decrease in draft eligible players opting out of bowl games and increase in those players accepting senior bowl invites. So let me make sure I have this right again. A decrease in draft eligible players opting out of bowl games and increase in those accepting senior bowl invites. I'm not 100% sure what you're getting at with the senior bowl invites. Maybe you're talking about underclassmen being more inclined to come back to school. Um, as far as guys opting out of bowl games, I, I don't see how that necessarily off the top of my head has much in effect um, because with these name, image, and likeness deals, and I'll get into this more later in the podcast because I do think we had a couple more questions on this, and I just kind of had some thoughts on it in general. Um, it's kind of the Wild West right now. I don't know like what the – what these deals will look like in two years compared to where they are now. I don't know like how binding they are in that sense. Like in terms of like, is there language when the guy signs an NIL deal that he has to play in games if he's healthy? I don't think you could do that. So I don't necessarily see a correlation in NIL affecting draft eligible players opting out of bowl games because just the amount of guys making, say you got a late first round pick on your hands. Um, trying to think of a good example um let's go for Ole Miss's sake Sam Williams he's got a chance to creep in the first round this year I think with a pretty good season you know if he has a good year and his stock soars and he he's up in the first round the amount of money that he's made on whatever name image and likeness deal that he has and I'm not even sure if he has one yet it's kind of been hard to keep up with this on you know from an, both a national standpoint and an Ole Miss standpoint I don't think the money that Sam Williams has, will make this year from a name, image, and likeness deal will rival first-round NFL draft pick money if that's where he's slotted. It probably won't even rival second or third-round money. And so, no, I don't think that'll change that, to be honest. Is there a world in a couple years where you kind of like – when there's a market set, right? There's going to be a correction to this stuff. Like, there's going to be – these deals being thrown around now, there's going to be ones that look great – for you know the buyer side and I guess the the player side as well and there's going to be ones that look terrible there's no market value right now there's no market standard and you know once there's a market standard set is there a world where you know you kind of see these guys maybe gravitate more playing in these bowl games because they made a decent amount of money I, I guess but I just have an incredibly hard time believing that that amount of money that most guys are going to make on name image and likeness deals in college is going to compare to the money that they would make in the NFL, whether if they're a first, second, I'll even throw a third round in their pick. And so, no, I don't necessarily think that'll, that'll have a huge effect on that. Um, as far as the senior bowl invites, I'm not sure I'm following you there a hundred percent, but uh, I, I guess is there you know, are guys more inclined to maybe, you know, if you're a fringe guy, right. If you're borderline first round, maybe you're borderline second, third round and you could jump into the first if you come back for another year and in the past would you just take the money and go but now with name image and likeness uh you're more inclined to come back to school because you're making you know decent money not great you know you know kids making mid five figures that seems to be a pretty standard for good college football players right now if you're out of a mid five figure name image and likeness deal and you're you know borderline second round pick with a chance to play your way into the first with another year of seasoning. Are you more inclined to come back? I would agree with that line of thinking. I, I think that's the case, but um, you know, as I've kind of said the whole time with this name image and likeness stuff, nobody seems to know, including the people in these athletic departments and in charge and health to some degree, some of these legislators, no one seems to know 
how this is going to affect what, who's going to govern this, who's going to enforce it, and uh, what the money is going to get up to on some of these deals. And so until we kind of know more about it and there's a market set, I, I, you could go either way on this. So I'm not confident in the way I answered that question, but I, I don't think this will have a huge effect on uh, you know your second round draft pick not being thrilled to play in the Alamo Bowl. Uh, because he's got a chance to, you know, be one of the top 35, 40 picks and make a couple million. I just don't think he's going to get that money in college. Maybe I'm wrong. So thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Let's see. What do we have next? David Collier chiming in again. With all the talk on the message boards about the upcoming capital project, what would you do with Vaught Hemingway Stadium if you can make a final call? Expenses be damned. Oh, okay. Well, that last part of the kicker. Expenses be damned. Um, I would take a bunch of dynamite. I would light it, and I would blow that place up and build a new stadium. I don't hate the Vaught per se. I don't think it's necessarily the most visually appealing stadium of all time. I don't think it's the most – and this is going to sound silly. I don't think it's the most, like, conducive for noise. Like, it's small, but it's also not, like – tightly packed in together it's kind of a hodgepodge of renovations over the years it doesn't look terrible per se but it also doesn't look like it was built with a huge modern plan in mind so if expenses weren't an issue I would just blow it up and build a 70,000 seat stadium that's really nice has all the bells and whistles you know kind of evenly bowled around and and go from there maybe the 70,000 numbers to too large, but hell, man, if Ole Miss is good in football and you're Lane Kiffin for you know a long period of time, I think they could absolutely fill something up like that. Now, if you you know have another half decade long NCAA investigation and you know hire a early 40s offensive line coach who's not necessarily qualified for the job, you know, because you have games where you have 25,000 people in this cavernous 70,000 seat stadium, sure, I guess. But I think Ole Miss fans can handle that. I think Ole Miss is ready for that, and so I, I would just blow it up and start over. What is your next renovation to Vaught Hemingway? Seating wise. Like, yes. Could they you know, spruce up some of the amenities, like in terms of like the luxury seating that are already there? Sure. But what's your next add on to Vaught Hemingway? Where is that going? Where's your next luxury add on or forget luxury. Where is your next add on? Like, can you point that out to me? You've got the gigantic scoreboard, you know, kind of covering the North end zone. So I don't know how you're going to expand like above the student section or you'd want to put people above the students anyway. You know, you're not going to expand on the left or the right side. So like where's the next expansion project if there is one or what is the next project to Vaught Hemingway Stadium? Honest to God, I think the next move is to probably have a new stadium. I think that's a long way off. I'm not in tune with Ole Miss's finances uh, from an athletic department perspective or their plan. But if expenses were not an issue, I, I would absolutely uh, blow that thing up. Uh, and start over with a new stadium. Now, that, I don't mean to dump on the VOD. I don't think it's a terrible place by any means. But if you're trying to improve your football stadium, I think you've kind of maxed out what the VOD can be, and you should probably go with a new one and a more modern one. So that's, uh, that's probably the way I would go on that. Silly man, chilly man. These internet names keep getting stranger and stranger. If a man who can see this is one. There's here's another one out of the book. The, our, I think our listeners just have a book of like how do we screw with Rippy's brain and put it in a pretzel on a Sunday night on a podcast. And this is one of them. If a man can read minds, who can read minds, and a man who can see the future played each other in a game of chess, who would win? 
Uh, it's too late for this. I'm going to go with the guy that can see the future because the guy that can see the future versus the guy that can read minds. Well, I guess, can they both see the future? If the guy that can see the future can see it, is it on his mind? And so can the mind reader see that? It's too late for this. This is not good podcasting. I'm going to go with the guy that can read minds because I think he can see the future by reading the guy's mind. So I just flip-flopped and now I'm confused. And I'm going to move on to the next question, although I appreciate you listening and uh, twisting my brain into a pretzel. So thank you. Bracken Ray, friend of the podcast, going to have him on in basketball season. He's chimed in. Best modern-day Ole Miss assistants in the big three sports. Ooh, this is a spicy one. This one made me think. As uh, Bracken always does, love talking hoops, love talking shop, just sports in general with Bracken, smart dude. This one made me think a bit when you uh, submitted it on Friday. And I think the answer you want me to go with, former AK assistant Bracken Ray, by the way, so just out full disclosure, Bill Armstrong was a really important assistant for Ole Miss during the Andy Kennedy era because once Bill left, that kind of buffer between good cop, bad cop um, – you know, went away, and I think some of those kids tuned AK out, and I know it was only the last year or whatever, but I think that matters, and I think Bill was a pretty decent recruiter as well. And so I think Bill Armstrong leaving for LSU, I know the program was getting stale a little bit, but expedited AK's downfall, per se, at Ole Miss, and I like AK. And I know most people listening to this podcast do, but I just wonder if Bill Armstrong had stuck around in that 20 – I guess that was 17. Yeah, I guess that 2017, 18, whatever season it was. I guess that would have been the 2018 season. I think that team, you know, you know that shot that doesn't go down at A&M that kind of ended up crushing their season. Do they kind of stick around longer and stay invested? Um, seems like they're kind of looking for reasons to tune AK out that year. And so I just wonder if Bill Armstrong's presence is around. If that season goes a little bit differently and doesn't, uh, doesn't crater – uh, the way it did in such quick fashion to where you had AK, you know, Ross make the announcement that AK was going to finish out the season and then walk away. And then it just gets so bad where he just walked away before the season ended. It, 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 it spiraled very quickly. And so I just wonder if, if Bill was still around, you know, how that would have gone differently, if at all, maybe not at all, but I do think Bill Armstrong was a pretty important assistant. Um, you know, another one that came to mind was Dan McDonald. He was a really good assistant for Ole Miss, um, you know, as has as kind of been well-documented in the early part of Mike Bianco's time at Ole Miss. Cliff Godwin, pretty good assistant, ends up scoring a pretty good job out of it. So that's those are three that immediately came to mind. And I'm sure as you guys are listening to this podcast, there's one or two that I've missed where you're just like, how did he not mention this guy? Uh, and I'm just, I you know, Hand up, I didn't go too deep into the research on this, but those were the first ones that came to mind when I originally saw this question, and I did a little bit of digging, and uh, here's a wild card answer that some of you maybe either, does this count as cheating? Does Matt Luke count? He was an assistant. He was the offensive line coach. He got thrown into the interim gig after uh, his boss got calling, caught calling escorts on a university cell phone. Shout-outs to Mons Venus, fine establishment in Tampa, I'm told. Uh, and was thrust in a really tough position. And I know people you know, were mad that he got the permanent job. And, you know, however you feel about Matt Luke, I think he did Ole Miss a great, great deed that 2017 season, keeping it together, finishing 6-6, six and six, winning the Egg Bowl. And I know the long-term effects of winning that 2017 Egg Bowl maybe were not favorable 
um, long term because, you know, you had a chance to kind of sticking his nose in a coaching search and you guys are well versed in all that. We don't have to rehash all of that. But, you know, frustrations with Matt Luke aside, he did do Ole Miss a great service that year. And, you know, if you're maybe if you're a little I, I tend to believe this. I think it was time for Ole Miss to move on from Matt Luke. I can see both sides of it kind of viewing it rationally and having covered the program. But I do think Matt Luke deserves some credit for not bot, not having the program completely bottom out even beyond that interim year. I know they went five and seven in 2018 and I think it was four and eight, four and eight, five and seven, 2019, whatever the hell it was. It doesn't matter. I know it wasn't great, but it, it could have been worse. And I think you'd be lying to yourself if you didn't admit that. And, you know, he recruited well, right? And, you know, he tried some things that didn't work. The Rich Rodriguez thing didn't work. You know, riding into the 2018 season with Phil Longo and Wesley McGriff in hindsight was a mistake. Um, but at the same time, he those guys did help him get a job and they stuck around. And so do you completely blame him for that? I say all of that to say – Regardless of what you think about Matt Luke's time at Ole Miss, he certainly did Ole Miss a, a, a favor and a service that 2017 season and then recruited pretty well to where Lane Kiffin was able to come in and have immediate success with Matt Corral and Jerry Ealy and some of those guys on the de- offensive line and, and a couple other players even on the defensive line. You know, the linebacker covered, covered wasn't completely bare when he got there. And so there was a world where Matt Luke could have, he was, I guess, kind of in over his head. I, I, I think you could admit that. But there is a world where that could have gone, you know, 2-10 and 10 and 18. And maybe that's unfair because Hugh Freeze did leave enough talent-wise that that would have been pretty bad. But you get my point. They could have recruited terribly and they could be climbing out of a, you know, still climbing out of a three-, four-year rebuild. And so I think he deserves some credit for that. So does that count as an assistant? I don't know. I don't know the rules of this game that Bracken has set upon us. But uh, I think uh, – that. I think those are three pretty good answers. And, you know, off the top of my head, I think that's uh, I think that's probably the most obvious ones. I, I know I'm probably missing one, so hand up. Um, you know, I think Clement's been a pretty good assistant as well. For, uh, and, and laugh, too, from a recruiting standpoint for Ole Miss baseball. So if you want to throw those in the mix. But I think my answer, if we're going to throw Matt Luke out of the equation, is probably Bill Armstrong with Ole Miss basketball. You know, I was trying to think of a couple of assistants from the freeze era, Dave Womack, Dan Werner. <laughs> I don't know if this guy's assistant, but Barney Farrar, just to troll the people out there. Um, but I couldn't really come up with another one that just seemed to make a gigantic impact. And maybe I'm missing an obvious one, but I'm going to go Bill Armstrong because I think his uh, his absence was very undersold in how quickly the uh, – the rub between that 27, 2018 team, Ole, Ole Miss basketball team and AK, uh, how, how quickly that soured without kind of the good cop Bill Armstrong there. And I think he did a pretty good job recruiting as well, whether it was you know, Marshall Henderson, Steph Moody, whatever. Um, I think he did a pretty good job there. So I think my answer is going to be Bill Armstrong on that one. Let's see what else we have down the pipe. What have you guys been asking me over the course of the last week? The next one we have is when do we, I'm guessing we, you mean Ole Miss, get a better version of a mascot? Oh, buddy, uh, you keep waiting, man. Look, I was there they, the day they unveiled that shark um, in the indoor practice facility. Look, whatever your thoughts are on the land shark, um, I'll give a couple brief thoughts. I think that they overthought it. 
Um, I get it's a land shark. I get it's not a, a, a real animal um, in terms of it being a water shark. I can't believe we're having this conversation on this podcast, but like, go to the San Jose Sharks, like the, the hockey team, and just model something off of that. Like the 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 land shark looks like a can opener and and a couple other things that I probably shouldn't say on this podcast. So I didn't think it looked great. You know, Ole Miss caught a lot of flack nationally when they unveiled that thing. Credit them for having the confidence to, you know, kind of change the mascot again. But look, pal, when you take away the Colonel Reb in 03 or whatever it is that – whatever year that was, and rightfully so, and then you go X amount of years without a mascot and then you kind of force feed the black bear upon everyone, which – look, we're in the summer. We could go Mount Rushmore – Mount Rushmore, I can't talk today, of black, black bear moments. And uh, it's probably him putting the bag on his head during the 2011 Houston Nuts season. That's literally the only thing I remember from the Black Bear other than, if I'm not mistaken, and I was younger back then, they had some trouble bringing him on the sideline initially because people would throw shit at him, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I just made that up. I'm not a reporter anymore. But uh, there's not a lot of highlights from the Black Bear era, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. And so once you unveiled that shark, um, you know, for better or for worse, that's your mascot for a while because if you change it again, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that love to poke fun at Ole Miss and Mississippi and the school having an identity crisis. Well, if you're on your fourth or third mascot in two decades, um, you're really feeding into the fire uh, of the storyline that is this school has an identity crisis. And so, I don't know, do they change the way the shark looks? Maybe that's what you're getting at uh, in terms of better version of the mascot, but you know, unless you really want to pivot and go back to the Ole Miss flood. And I don't have a huge opinion on the rebels versus the flood thing. I don't intend to get in into that today. I'm just saying, unless you make another gigantic pivot and just say the hell with it, we're doing this. Uh, sorry, buddy. I think you're stuck with the shark for a while. Um, whatever, man. Mascots are for kids. I don't think it necessarily matters. You're the Ole Miss rebels. Your mascot's a shark. Deal with it. I guess. I don't know. Um, burritos with Boone, Will Boone, former Ole Miss video uh, production staffer, a good buddy of mine. Uh, favorite athlete of all time, he checks in to ask, and why? This is an interesting one because I've never really gotten hugely attached to uh, athletes. Uh, you know, as I was a kid, I got attached to teams. I was a big Cubs fan when I was a kid. I still like the Tennessee Titans. I follow them. If the Titans lose, it doesn't ruin my day. I don't really follow the Cubs as much anymore. Once I did that MLB internship uh, and covered the Reds and all that, it really uh, – I know people get tired of the whole fan, not a fan thing between media in general and whatever. Um, it really does kind of suck, like, the team interest out of you. Like, it's so hard for me to, like, root for teams now. I just don't seem to care. And it's kind of been – I was never really, like, huge into athletes and – so I guess to answer your question, maybe this is recency bias, but I was always a big Chris Paul guy. I just really enjoyed the way he played basketball and he's in the finals now. And I've kind of jumped on board the Suns bandwagon because I, as I wrote in the newsletter that last week, for those of you who are subscribers, you know, I, I linked the video that his head coach, Monty Williams, the Suns head coach, um, speaking at his wife's funeral his wife died tragically in 2016 after a car accident hit her head on and she died back then died instantly um after the car came over the lane and hit her head on him speaking at her funeral 
was one of the more moving things I've seen in a while. And I knew the storyline when it happened, but I'd never seen the video until I happened to go back and watch it last week. And Monty coached Chris um, his first couple years uh, in the league in New Orleans. And they always didn't get along back then. Like, they, they, you know, it's, it's kind of now being romanticized as the Monty Williams-Chris Paul reunion. They didn't see eye to eye back then. And Chris Paul's kind of a difficult guy to get along with sometimes. And I think it's just kind of his abrasive leadership style. He's, you know, he's a dying breed. And I don't mean that negatively. There's, you know, he's an old-fashioned point guard. He's going to run the show. He's going to set up your offense. He's not going to turn the ball over. And he's going to score when he wants to. You know, Chris Paul could get 30 on any given night if he wants to. But, you know, he, he has other responsibilities and kind of sees the game a different way to where he doesn't always need to take 15 shots a game and try to get to 30 points. Like, you kind of get what I'm getting at. So, you know, all of that to say, I, I guess Chris Paul is probably one of them. I know that's probably recently biased, but I've never just gotten huge into athletes in general. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I was a big fan of um, – Javon Kirst, the Titans defensive lineman. Um, there are a couple others. You know, I, I was a big – I like Phil Mickelson. I was always a big Phil guy uh, growing up golf-wise. You know, I like Tiger. I mean, who didn't like Tiger when you were a kid growing up? To, to say I was some Tiger fanatic would, uh, would be off base. Honestly, the most rooting interest I have these days is me just standing up and going bonkers over the guy – the Mississippians playing professional golf right now. Most of them are on the Corn Ferry Tour. But, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Chad Ramey, uh, who I have a story coming out on this week, Hayden Buckley, Braden Thornberry, Wilson Fur, like the most I have, like a personal rooting interest now, really are those guys playing golf and representing the state of Mississippi well. I find that to be very cool, um, you know, and having known some of those guys growing up playing high school golf and stuff, that's honestly probably the closest thing I have to an emotional connection to, you know, a team or an athlete or something. And so, I, this is probably a terrible answer. I'm probably not the best guy to be asking this, but if you made me go a stereo, like a, a generic route, I would probably go Chris Paul and Phil Mickelson. Just always really liked both of them. Let's see. Next question we have. Zach Rowland checks in. If Ole Miss makes the playoff this year, how long till the probation starts? Well, I don't think Lane Kiffin would tell an NCAA investigator to kick rocks. Uh, immediately and just kind of start the relationship off terrible because he's uh, that arrogant and uh, you know read into that what you will <laughs> but I, I don't think you're gonna have to worry about that I don't think Ole Miss is making the playoff this year so I don't think you have to worry about that uh, in general but uh, anyway you get where I'm going with it I, uh, I don't think you have to worry about that which leads us to what we can probably get into and I'll probably save it for another day but like what is NCAA enforcement going to do these days? Sit on their hands? I mean, they had this name, image, and likeness deal. How in the hell is that getting enforced? Like, you have all these different states with different laws and you know, different governing bodies. Like, who in the hell is governing this, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Is the NCAA really going to try to sift through all kinds of different state laws to try to regulate this name, image, and likeness thing? I have my doubts. And so, if you thought the NCAA was toothless before, you know, you know Ole Miss case be damned or aside – you know, them kind of having a decade's worth of history of losing appeals and whether it be North Carolina or a couple of these other ones, uh, the Penn State deal where those sanctions kind of got overturned after a while. Um, if you thought they were toothless then, buddy, now the name, image, and likeness is here. They are, uh, they are certainly toothless now. So um, I don't think you'll have to worry about that. And I know you were joking in terms of the, the, 
the way you asked the question, but it is kind of interesting. Like what does the NCAA enforcement staff do these days? Do they just count their money and go on vacation. Like how in the world does this work? Um, but I, it's just, I don't know. Like is, is the NCAA two years from now with name, image and likeness kicking in gonna, you know, yeah, I know they're notorious for this hammer southeastern Louisiana because some softball players signed a name, image, and like this deal that's wrong. Like, I just have a hard time believing that. I think we've truly entered kind of the Wild West in terms of this stuff, at least in the next couple of years until – I do ultimately think name, image, and likeness will become more regulated as we learn more about it. Um, and for as much shit that Mark Emmert takes, and deservedly so, I'm not about to sit here and defend Mark Emmert, I do think he probably had a point where he went in front of Congress over these last couple of months and just kind of begged them to set some sort of national legislation or national precedent or one uniform set of legislation nationally that can kind of guide this whole name, image, and likeness deal versus the states doing it and setting their own policies. And of course, it fell on deaf ears. I mean, uh, I mean, you even had one state, you had one lawmaker. <laughs> tell Emmert that uh, the organization he oversees is essentially a cartel. There was no sympathy on behalf of uh, federal lawmakers and the uh, Mark Emmert and the NCAA. But I do think he probably had a pretty good argument. And I do think there was a reason that Power Five commissioners put together a letter that was in favor of there being some sort of national precedent or some sort of national legislation to help govern this. Because, you know, excuse my French, but for the lack of a better phrase, from a governing and enforcement standpoint, when you have all these different state laws with, you know, different, uh, I guess, parameters and guidelines for what's allowed with name, image, and likeness, you have a shit show from an enforcement standpoint. And as me as a viewer now, and I guess someone who's halfway in media, I, I don't care. I think these kids should be able to try to get as much money as they can in any way that they can. But if you are going to try to, you know, it, Nothing is good without some sort of regulation. I think that's probably just true for anything in life. It's, I mean, hell, look at the, I know I'm rambling, but look at the internet and Twitter and all social media. None of this was ever regulated when it came up and we kind of created a monster to where, you know, every time I talk about something with an Alexa within 200 feet of me, I'm going to start getting ads on my phone about it. Like it's just, there should, there should have been more regulation with social media from the start. Uh, and it would have saved us a lot of trouble and probably would have you know, been a lot better for society in general. And I know I'm kind of going all over the place and not go full galaxy brain on you. I guess what I'm saying is everything is better with regulation. And so I do think this name, image, and likeness thing ultimately becomes more regulated. But for the short term, it's the Wild West. And everyone you talk to when you ask them, well, what if this happens or who's going to enforce this? you kind of just get a collective shoulder shrug and it's just kind of anything goes. And so, you know, that was a little bit of a tangent. I know that guy was joking with the way he asked the question, but uh, this name image and likeness stuff fascinates me because I think the wild West is here and I don't think it's a bad thing, but I do think it will probably need to be a little more regulated as we learn more about it. Let's see, rolling through these questions. I appreciate you guys coming through in the clutch uh, for what should have been a Friday podcast. I was a little bit worried that we weren't going to get a lot of questions, but uh the listeners showed out as always. Which Ole Miss athlete gets the biggest name, image, and likeness deal, and from what company? Antonio Batista asked. It's a good question. I guess the obvious answer is Matt Corral. Um, I think he's the most marketable. Uh, I saw he set up an email or some sort of website to kind of have take business inquiries through. In, inquiries through. So I 
think it'll probably be Matt Corral. You know, he's going to sort, you know, if he has a good year, he's going to soar up draft boards and he'll certainly be the most famous athlete on campus. Is there some Ole Miss athlete in a niche sport? And I say niche sport, just a less popular sport in terms of the television and a national landscape um, perspective. Like, is there someone, what's the gymnast at LSU's name? I can't remember her name, but she's probably going to make over seven figures because she has an absurd social media following. Like, is there someone on Mrs. Campus that could kind of make a ton more money than you think? I'm sure there is. I can't think of them. But uh, I guess the boarding answer would be Matt Corral. Like, could it be Momo Sonogo or Jerry on Ely? You know, two sporter guys. Help, John Rice Plumley. Little did you know, he plays the piano. Could could you get a little cold plate name, image, and likeness deal from John Rice Plumley? I don't know. Who's to say? But uh, I think it'll be Corral. But, you know, Ely is a charismatic guy. Plumley's certainly a charismatic guy. Never met a camera he didn't like, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Very, definitely charismatic dude. So Corral's probably the safest answer. But if Plumley and Ely, just from the two-sport two sport perspective, and being guys that are personable and seem very likable, did they? If they sign something bigger than Corral, would it stun me? No. Um, we need to get Ely hooked up with a piano company. So uh, write that one down out there. If anyone owns a piano company out there, uh, you should jump on that. Maybe I'm just uh, speaking into the void, and this is already the process has already been started. But uh, yeah, John Rice Plumley plays the piano. But my answer is Corral. Let's see. Michael Bianco Jr. checking in. When's the next Destin trip? Anytime you name it, pal. Uh, let's see. Favorite restaurant fast food at 2 a.m. Randy Morgan asks. Um, ooh, this is a tough one. So I grew up in Jackson and uh, Whataburger was a big deal, whether it was the one on County Line or the one closer to downtown. And, you know, we don't condone underage drinking on this podcast, but let's just say the uh, as a 19, 18, 19 year old kid that uh, that honey butter chicken biscuit at 1 a.m. Uh, that hit quite nicely uh, after, uh, you know, whether it was some sort of rush party, college event uh, to where I was sober because, you know, I wasn't 21. Uh, <laughs> hitting that late at night was always a good one. So Whataburger is a solid one. Uh, I kind of have a Taco Bell kick when I, uh, when I, when I, you know, had a few on the square or whatever. I kind of like the Taco Bell. Uh, if I can find one, the Doritos Locos late night, don't knock it till you try it. Those Delito, Doritos Locos tacos late night are fire. Add them with the Cinnabon delights. Trust me, great meal. And to be honest, um, one of the benefits for my health moving away from Oxford was I was hugely addicted to chicken on a stick. Anytime I went to anywhere on the square, the library. And so that was a must for me. And it's, I've been back a couple of times since, and it's been nice to roll through chicken on the stick again. But uh, you, your guy here on the microphone was uh, oftentimes averaging a $15 order at chicken on the stick, sometimes twice a weekend. And I, I don't see how I could have made it much past my 40s uh, if that had continued. And I don't even get chicken on a stick at chicken on a stick. I get the egg roll. Crispito and pizza stick route. Sometimes two of each if I'm feeling real frisky. I will admit, hand up, there was one time that was not my finest moment in college where I got four of each, woke up with it in my bed. Very, uh, very odd day. I think I spent $35 at a gas station. Not my finest moment, but uh, I'll go Whataburger and Taco Bell. I'm a big McDonald's guy just in general, and so you can't ever go wrong there. But that's kind of your run-of-the-mill generic bread and butter type of deal. 
So uh, I will go Whataburger and Taco Bell for favorite restaurant fast food, but my favorite food in the world at 2 a.m., if chicken on a stick is even still open, then if that counts, is absolutely rolling through the Oxford Chevron, chicken on a stick. So thanks for that submission. We're kind of hitting all angles here on this uh, Mailbag Monday podcast. Let's see. Ooh, here's a good one. Dr. Justin Zampella, I think that's how you say it. Apologies if I'm missing your name. You're an eye doctor. Can you make me uncolorblind, by the way? I can't see colors too well. Uh, the whole red-green colored effect going on. If you have any tips on that, uh, people at work make fun of me. So could you uh, maybe hook me up with something there? I'm down for any sort of experimental surgery. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. You asked this question, and by the time I've answered this, you've already played the round, but I think this is good advice anyway. He asked, I'm playing my first ever round of golf this Saturday. What is your best tip to avoid total embarrassment? I had a pretty decent drive on Wii Sports, so I'm hoping this translates. Uh, I appreciate the, uh, the joke at the end. That is funny. Um, but this is an interesting one because, you know, I, I think this is a real thing with some people. I think some people are tentative to get into the game of golf because when you first get in the game of golf, a spoiler alert, golf is hard. and when you get into the game at, at a late age, it can be kind of intimidating because, you know, to me, the main difference I notice between guys that stick with golf and guys that, you know, try it for six months and buy clubs and the gear and all that. And then within, you know, nine to 15 months have just completely given up on it is being able to handle that embarrassment, as you kind of put it. And I don't necessarily mean that in like a mean way, because I, I like, I, I honestly enjoy sometimes playing with guys that are just beginning to get into the game of golf. I have a couple of friends that I play with regularly that have not been playing very long. And honestly, you know, I'm fortunate that my father got me into the game of golf early in life. And, you know, I, I'm not a great golfer by any means, but I'm a decent stick and I can break 80, you know, when I'm playing well and things like that. And so I say that to say, I can't, I can't imagine trying to get into golf at age I'm 26, but there are people that get into it at 30 or 35 or 40, but guys getting it into it in their mid to late twenties. I have a, a certain respect for that in the sense that if you stick with it and it becomes something that becomes a part of your life for, you know, the you know, 10, 15 years, um, it's hard because there is a level of embarrassment to it, right? you, you know, if you've never played golf before and you go out and you try your first 18 holes, I, I don't care what kind of track you're on. It's going to kick your ass and you're going to lose a lot of balls and you're going to hit a couple shots that probably defy physics. And if you're playing with a group, it can be embarrassing because you're worried about playing slow and you're worried about holding them up. And, you know, when you have three guys, you know, before yeah, you're in a foursome and you know, those three guys don't even have to be good, but, you know, they hit one down the left side, the right side. Maybe the one guy hits one down the middle, and then you top it 25 feet in front of you. It's embarrassing, and I get that. But the ability to stick through it, to me, and kind of mold yourself into a guy that can, you know, break 100, you know, every so often and get around and play your afternoon foursome without holding the course up, I have a lot of respect for people that stick with it long enough to do that, seriously, because – if you commit to practicing for six to nine months, a couple of times a week, maybe once a week, but getting out there and actually getting after and playing it, anyone with a remote morsel of athletic ability can turn themselves into a decent golfer. I firmly believe that. 
And so if you're going out and this guy, by the time we're recording this, has already done it, going out and playing your first 18 holes of golf. It's funny you say that because two weekends ago, I played with a buddy of mine who actually just got into golf a year or two ago. He Kind of the, the camp I'm just talking about to where he's gotten good enough to where he sticks with it and he can get around. He doesn't hold the group up or anything. And he's not a great player by any means, but he's actually pretty damn good for only playing for a year. We played at a place in South Dallas called uh, Cedar Crest, which is a great course, a lot of history, cool city course. I think Ben Hogan won the 1927 PGA Championship there. It's an awesome little track. But we got paired with two randoms. So it was me and my buddy, this guy that was kind of in the camp that I described too. Looks like he'd taken up golf later in life, stuck with it. Probably couldn't really break 90 to 95, but was probably around there and was okay. And then this other guy who showed up, and he was probably two, three years older than us. So he's probably late 20s, early 30s. And we didn't know it till the end of the round, but that was his first 18 holes ever. And he was terrible. But he kind of knew how to pick up in terms of pace of play. So he would hit it. And if he hit it off the map a couple of times, he would just pick up or go drop by the green and practice chipping and putting. Or if he hit one off the map, he wouldn't spend 20 minutes, you know, going through the weeds trying to find his pro V1 and playing the damn thing as it lies. He knew kind of, okay, I'll just drop this in the fairway and play from here and just kind of work on learning how to play the game of golf. And at the end of the round, we had a great time with this guy. And he was like, yeah, that was my first 18 holes ever. Um, he was like, congrats for being here for this. And we all just kind of laughed because I guess it made more sense now because he was very, very bad. But he knew how to he, – he didn't get frustrated, and he knew how to keep up with the group. And he knew how to not hold people up. And, you know, he wasn't keeping score, but he kind of took advantage of, you know – dropping a ball down by the green and, you know, learning how to chip and putt and, and learning how to play the game. And so if you're going with your first 18, I'll tell you, advise you one, don't keep score. Two, kind of be conscious of pace of play. And three, don't be mad at yourself. You can't beat yourself up, dude. You're going to hit bad shots. You're going to hit shots that just defy physics, as I mentioned earlier. It's golf. It's the hardest game on earth for a reason. You're going to suck but stick with it and you're going to keep getting better. And I promise you, you'll probably hit a shot that'll keep you coming back. And if you practice, you'll get better. And then pretty soon you won't have to be picking up balls. You'll, you'll, you won't be good, but you know, you'll have, you'll be flirting with breaking a hundred and you'll make it through 18 holes with your Saturday group and, uh, and, and be getting around. Okay. And so, you know, if in the beginning you commit to it, if you're serious about getting into golf, and I have no idea if you're serious about it, I, you may not be at all. And I'm just kind of preaching to the choir here. But if there's anyone out there like that, just commit to it. Don't be mad and don't get frustrated. And then keep up with pace of play. Your first three, four months playing golf and you're going out with your uh, group of guys to play. Um, oh, and I would advise you to play by yourself as often as you can, because that's the easiest and least embarrassing way to get better. And it's not as intimidating to go try to figure it out by yourself. And then two, like I said, don't get mad. Don't get embarrassed. And uh, just try to keep up with the group. Don't top 130 yards in the woods and be like, you know, five, you know, play out the full five, 10 minute clock of trying to find your ball in the weeds. Just go throw that shit in the fairway and keep going. Um, and then you'll learn how to play better golf. Like you can't learn a whole lot trying to hit off a root in the woods. Just put that out in the fairway and try to make a good swing. So that would be my advice to you for trying to learn how to play the game of golf. So 
appreciate that submission. I don't know if that was a good answer at all. This could be an incredibly boring podcast, but uh, I, I do find guys that get into golf later in life and stick with it. I have a, a pretty, pretty profound respect for that because it is, it is really humbling and it is really hard. So anyway, we spent enough time on that. Favorite number. Uh, this guy checks in all the time. Ryan Long, 69. You know this. Favorite restaurant in Oxford or Jackson? Jackson and Oxford. He's asking for both. Ooh. You know, for as many problems as Jackson had, has, I should say, um, food is not one of them. The Jackson metro area has a lot of really good restaurants and a lot of really good food. Um, you know, it's a really underrated food town. And I know there's people out there that have been to Jackson or lived to Jackson that would probably agree with me. If there's someone that disagrees with me, you've probably been doing it wrong. Um, you know, if you're going upscale, man, it's hard to beat a Shapley steak in Jackson. I, I really enjoy that place. It's, it's awesome. But if you're kind of going a little more, uh, not hole in the wall, but like casual dining and maybe like a kept secret or something like that in Jackson and hell, there's so much more new stuff now, even since I moved away to college and haven't come back like that whole Fondren area that has like a barrel house and a saltine and a couple other restaurants in there is so good too. Um, that I'm not even as familiar with it as I once used to be. Um, but I will go Sombra out in Ridgeland is really good. Um, Georgia Blue is another good one in Ridgeland that I've really enjoyed. But uh, if you're going like upscale meal in Jackson, it, it's hard to beat a Zaxby's, excuse me, Zaxby's, Shapley's steak. I guess you can go to Zaxby's if you want to. I don't think that's a Jackson original. Um, Walker's Drive-In, another really solid spot. Amerigo, another really good one. Sal and Phil's, really like that place. Um, it's hard to beat. As far as Oxford, my favorite restaurant in Oxford uh, if we're going to go steak again, I think it's Grill House. I really enjoy Grill House. I, I like City Grocery okay. I'm not as huge of a fan of the menu. Um, and then a more casual one, I really enjoy Moe's Barbecue. I, I think that's a really good spot on the square. Um, I, I think they have really good barbecue. I love their sides. They have a sweet potato uh, like side that's really good to me and a couple other ones. I think it's solid barbecue. Uh, Mama Joe's, kind of an off-the-wall one. I'm sure there's some OGs that know about Mama Joe's. is a very good kind of home southern cooking place. I could go all day about the food and places to eat in Oxford, and I'm sure you know most of the people listening to this podcast are well aware of them. But um, you know, I like the Ajax, the Proud Larrys, and all that too. But I, I'll go – if you're going kind of uh, uh, low-key-ish low dining or more casual dining, I'm probably going Moe's, Mama Joe's, something like that. And then I really enjoy Oxford Grill House. Uh, and then Six and Tubs, if you want to go – I know you didn't ask about the pizza places – but uh, Six and Tubs, absolutely fire pizza. You've never tried that. So I don't know if that's news or, or solid recommendations to anyone, but uh, those are the ones I enjoy, both in Oxford and Jackson. Let's see. Oh, we're headed back towards name, image, and likeness for this next question. Kyle Varell, I hope I said that correctly. Why does Ole Miss start, not start offering kids like Job an NIL deal to compensate their draft stock to help get them to campus with all the big boosters Ole Miss has, you think someone would jump over the opportunity. Well, and uh, listener Zach Rowland uh, kind of chimed in as well for him and said, you can't give them anything until they are on campus. And, uh, of course, you know, wink, wink, because you have something in order, of course. 
But uh, I hate to break it to you, pal. With someone like Jackson Job, there's no one that's going to offer Jackson Job a $7 million name, image, and likeness deal or whatever the hell he just got for the Tigers. And he'll probably sign for – I'm guessing Jackson Job signs for a little bit under slot value, just a, just a hunch. But it's still going to be in the six, five, six million dollar range, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I, I don't have slot values pulled up, but let's just say it's five million dollars. No one is giving Jackson Job a five million dollar name, image, and likeness deal. And I don't know what kind of pockets you think Ole Miss boosters have. I get that Ole Miss has some rich boosters, just like any other school. But who in the hell is giving five million bucks to a baseball player to come play college baseball, even at a place like Ole Miss that cares about it more? It's just not realistic. But, you know, not to be that guy and take your question completely literally, I do kind of see what you're getting at, um, you know, with some dudes. But if it's, you know, draft-eligible guys, most of the time those guys are going to go if they're drafted in the first round. And so you're talking about giving seven figures to baseball players to come play baseball in college at Ole Miss. That's just not really feasible. I don't know what – a Tim Elko could get from a name, image, and likeness deal, whether it's a national deal or somewhere locally in Oxford. But I feel pretty damn confident <laughs> saying it's not in the seven-figure range, and it's probably not even in the six-figure range either. And so I just – I don't think – I get what you're getting at to where it's like, why can you not pull your money together and kind of create your own payroll? Because that's essentially what this is. Like the NCA basically was like, you know – we don't want you to have a payroll. So create this, you know, name, image, and likeness thing and, you know, create this, you know, amount of money you give a certain person X times a month, X times, you know, once a month or X times a year, just don't call it a payroll, which is kind of the farce in this whole thing in the resistance to the whole thing, I should say. But uh, you're, you're kind of overestimating how much money people would be willing to pull together for college baseball players. It's just not going to compare it, how it wouldn't compare to football. And you you saw the black market numbers that kids have gotten and, you know, the rumors or, you know, reported numbers that kids have gotten, you know, illegally in the past for football. That's not rivaling seven figures and not even really close. You know, it's rare to get into six figures. And so I just don't think that's possible in any sport. Um, So that's probably the answer to my question. I don't really, uh, I don't really see that happening. Shad White, who I don't think is the real Shad White, uh, for this, if you out there who knows who that is, uh, who's the biggest producer for the offense this fall outside of Corral and Ely? I'll give you two answers off the top of my head. One would be Henry Parrish. He was a kid that came on late in the year last year for Ole Miss and kind of siphoned away carries from Snoop Connor to where Snoop Connor really just kind of became – a short yardage back for Ole Miss by the end of the year. And I think Henry Parrish has a little more versatility than they showed last year with Ely kind of being, you know, the feature back. I do think they're going to use Ely in the slot and move him around the bunch. So I think that's going to open up production for Parrish, particularly out of the backfield. I think he has the ability to catch passes out of the backfield. I don't know off the top of my head how many he caught last year. But I think Henry Parrish is a name to watch because I think the more they move Ely around and use him in different ways, I think that'll open the door for Parrish to, one, get more carries to kind of decrease the uh, – maybe the between-the-tackles workload for Ely. And, two, I just think having Ely out moving around will create opportunities for Parrish to run the football um, and kind of you know, get guys out of the box and create mismatches within you know the front seven for Ole Miss. And so I think that's a possibility. And then the other one I'd go to is – 
it's got to be a receiver, right? Like, I don't necessarily see Chase Rogers or Casey Kelly or whomever at tight end, you know, kind of having the production that Yaboa had, even though this, you know, the tight end spot is certainly a predominant position of productivity under Lane, Lane Kiffin and Jeff Lebby. I just think you'll have to go receiver. And this is, I mean, what do you, what can you get out of Drummond? What can you get out of a Jonathan Mingo? What can you get out of a Miles Battle? To me, those are all gigantic question marks. Drummond was good in spots. Mingo had the good game against Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken, last year, and then just kind of, um, not floated, but kind of was in and out in terms of consistency. And, you know, I don't know what you get from either one of the Jackson, uh, the Jackson guys, whether it's Dennis or Jaden. I, I think there's some potential there. And so I think the most known commodity from a receiver standpoint is Braylon Sanders. And I think he has the potential to be a pretty good deep threat and a pretty good weapon over the middle of the field. Kicker with him, of course, is staying healthy. He's had a hard time the last three years staying on the field. And I think if Braylon Sanders is able to stay on the field for 12 games or close to it for Ole Miss, that's a game changer offensively. And I think, you know, that's a kid that had 15-ish catches in 18 in a, in a receiving core that included DK Metcalf, DeMarcus Lodge, and A.J. Brown. Like, he, you know, he, he broke into that and, 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 and had some production even with those guys around. And so I think if, if he can stay on the field and stay healthy, I think he has a chance to have a pretty big year. So I'll go Braylon Sanders and Henry Parrish as my two answers. I know you only asked for one. And Parrish is probably my actual answer, but Sanders is another guy to watch out because watch out for because if he can stay on the field, I think he's got a chance to be pretty damn good. You just haven't seen it in a full season's capacity uh, so far. So anyway, that's my answer to that one. Let's see. Brent Ferguson chimes in and asks, "Are you a fan of these the match things, or is it played out at this point?" So for those of you out there who may be unfamiliar for what the match is, it was. The latest version of it was Phil Mickelson, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, and Bryson DeChambeau playing two-on-two at some course in Montana that one, any, any of us would probably have a hard time affording to get on. And them just kind of yucking it up and having a good time. I liked the match. Um, you know, it was interesting. The first time this happened, it was the Phil versus Tiger match or whatever, and they both played like shit that day. And so it made for like uh, kind of some – less than compelling golf per se, but I just thought the idea of kind of a pay-per-view style one-on-one heavyweight fight per se uh, in, in golf terms uh, would would be something interesting that sells. And it was good during the pandemic last year, right? You had the match between, was that Matthew Wolf And I don't even remember who else played at this point. Um, but you know what I'm getting at? These kind of standalone buy it uh, matches Played out is probably the wrong word. It doesn't pique my interest, and I'm a huge, I'm a big golf fan. I really enjoy watching the PGA Tour. Honest to God, I enjoy watching the Corn Ferry Tour and following it more so uh, now than the PGA Tour in a lot of senses just because there's guys I know on there, and I have a couple buddies that play out there. And so I, I, I say all of that to say I feel like I'm pretty in tune with the golf industry, um, and I like them. But I was at work for a decent bit of the match between Brady, DeChambeau. I don't even know what the teams were. I think it was Rodgers and DeChambeau and maybe Mickelson and Brady or whatever the hell the case may be. I don't really know. It doesn't matter. Um, I didn't watch a lot of it. I thought the commentary was funny. I thought seeing Brady bomb a couple drives was pretty cool. 
had I been home with nothing to do that day, would I have watched it? Yeah, probably. But would it have been musty TV at the same time? No. Um, I like having Phil mic'd up. As dorky as Bryson is, I like having him mic'd up. And Aaron Rodgers and uh, Tom Brady are kind of charismatic in their own ways. And so if you get you know, good, entertaining people on a microphone, I think the golf probably takes a back seat to it. And so from like an entertainment standpoint, I don't think it's played out. I think it's cool. But, you know, will it get stale the seventh iteration of the match when it's, you know, none of those four and it's maybe a couple more guys that are not interesting? Sure. Um, but I do think it's an interesting kind of uh, side faction to the to the golf landscape to where I do think it's probably around to stay. I think the whole, you know, pay to watch us play model with celebrities and guys that draw eyeballs I think that's probably going to stay around for a while. So I don't think it's played out. It just doesn't necessarily pique my interest to the point where I was beaten up about having to go to work and miss that, I guess, if that makes sense. I would have probably watched it had I been home doing nothing. But at the same time, uh, I, I did not really feel bad missing the majority of it. So that's kind of my thoughts on that. I think it's good for golf. Um, I think golf has kind of experienced a little bit of a boom during this pandemic. I know Rory McIlroy has alluded to that a couple of times. And so, you know, anything that gets more eyeballs to people watching golf and wanting to go play golf, I'm all for. So I'm not going to hate on it. But it, it's not something that really just piques my interest, though I would watch it was it on and I had nothing to do. I'd probably, you know, it's one of those things, it's like justifying buying a boxing match or a UFC fight or something like that. Like, do I know all the rules of UFC? No. Am I going to spend 70 bucks worse if I don't buy a USC fight? Will I spend 70 bucks a dumber way? Absolutely. So why not buy it? You know what I mean? So that's kind of the way I view that. Anyway, good question. Let's see here. Here's another one from the book that the listeners pull out of, and this is probably a fitting way to end this one. Fight 100 size chicken T-Rexes or one T-Rex size chicken. I'm going to go one T-Rex size chicken. 100 is a lot to focus on. Honestly, if I could stab the T-Rex size chicken in the neck, I probably would have won the fight to where I feel like the 100 T-Rex size chicken or chicken size T-Rexes, um, even if they didn't kill me, they would take me back to their leader and maybe like roast me over a fire or something. So um, I have a hard time paying attention to things and keeping an attention span uh, at times. So I'm going to focus on the one T-Rex size chicken as opposed to have to fight off one uh, 100 chicken size T-Rexes because uh, I imagine 100 T-Rexes, no matter how small, they have some teeth and that, uh, that shit would suck. So I'm going to go with the one T-Rex size chicken and try to rip its head off. So now you know my fighting strategy. Um, we can't end the podcast with that question. Surely I had one more. There's no way that we just ended the podcast this way. Did we just end the podcast this way? I think we might have ended the podcast this way. Let's see. Going through all of these. Yeah, that's our show. I appreciate everyone tuning in. Those are all the mailbag questions. Um, weird, weird way to end the podcast, but whatever. Uh, I appreciate you guys tuning in. I don't know if this was any good. I have no idea if this was too much me talking. I promise I'll have a co-host back for Wednesday's podcast or a guest. Um, but I just, we had some tef- technical difficulties getting the pod going on Friday, and I felt terrible having you guys p- take the time to send in questions and then me just waste it by not using them. And so I wanted to get this out of the way. That's our Monday show. 
uh, you know, if you liked it, uh, I appreciate the feedback as always. If you didn't, uh, I promise you we won't be doing a ton of hour-long solo podcasts in the future because uh, this was the first time I've ever done something like this. So anyway, we've got some cool guests lined up. I'm going to start dipping my toes into uh, some football preview coverage, but was a little wary to go too deep into that before SEC media days. But uh, I appreciate you guys listening as always. It, it means the world to me. I'm, I'm very, uh, very pleased with how this podcast has grown. Very thrilled to be a part of the Rivals Rebel Grove family. And uh, thank you guys for listening as always. Hope you enjoyed this. You have a safe and happy start to your week. And uh, we'll be back with the cool guests on Wednesday. 